meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is How Does Meditation Influence Restorative Practices? How do we cope when we've caused harm to ourselves or to others? We might become defensive, feel shame, or lash out. What if instead we held ourselves accountable and repaired harm with a sense of honesty and confidence? We not only repair harm to others, we restore ourselves to wholeness through getting in touch with our basic goodness and acting with generosity and dignity. Meditation helps us notice what we're up to, what we're thinking, and how we act based on that thinking. And it can aid in repairing damage in order to restore the harmony of the community. Today we are joined by Toon Faulkner. Toon has been studying Shambhala Buddhism since 1994. She lives in northern Vermont on 65 acres of land with her husband, Greg. Toon is a facilitator of restorative panels in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, working with people in the community who've committed crimes, collaborating with the Probation and Parole Office, local police departments, and the state attorney's office. She enjoys hiking, gardening, kayaking, skiing, and being silly with her grandchildren. Here's Toon to take away the discussion. The intersection with uh, meditation and restorative practices. I'll probably talk a little bit more about restorative justice just because that's the work that I do and that's what I'm familiar with, but I wanted to broaden it to restorative practices, which to me means that um, anytime that there's anything that needs to be restored, right? So the, the fact that we're talking about restorative implies that there was some kind of harm done, but it doesn't have to rise to the level of criminal activity, which is what I do in my work. But since that's my work, I just want to say what I've noticed over the years of working at the Restorative Justice Center. And I was, I was just thinking today, I've probably worked with a maybe about 1,200 people, I think, who've committed a crime in our community. Some of them are repeaters, but um, a lot of them are, are first-time people who've come. I want to say one more thing before I go on, and that is that I feel like as human beings, the thing that all of us want the most is connection with others, connection with our community, connection with a religious organization, not saying we all want that. I'm saying that might be important to us or a school or family or whatever, but that's what makes for a meaningful life is our connection with others and a sense of belonging. So when we've done, when we've caused harm, whether it rises to the level of being a criminal act or not, there's a break, right? In that sense of our desire to uh, have connection and a sense of belonging, and then also causing harm. And there's lots of ways to cause harm. There's verbal harm, physical harm, financial harm. Uh, we might have breached a sense of trust or a sense of safety with somebody else. 
And so what, what I've learned is that when people come to our office, almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody minimizes what they did, might blame somebody else for it. They, they will take responsibility, but um, minimize the, um, the degree of severity or impact on somebody else. So how do we reconcile those two things? We wanna belong, we wanna be connected, but then when we do something to cause harm, we also tend to blame or be defensive. I mean, and again, it doesn't have to be a criminal thing. Like I noticed the broom was missing in our broom closet and it's like, what's my first thought? That the person I live with must've taken it and put it somewhere else, not me. (laughs) So I think we, it's easy to do to do that. And we do it often, I think, is to like, oh, it couldn't have been me. It had to be somebody else. Um, we, we have a little joke at our office that when we have a DUI affidavit and the police go through the interview process and ask somebody how much they drank, it's always two Budweiser's. And then you look at the blood alcohol content, it's twice the legal limit, which is there's no way it was two Budweiser's. <laughs> That's what people say. So, um, So how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile what we do and when we cause harm? And again, it could be in a tiny little way. It could just be something we said that was sort of mean or or it could even be a thought that we had about other people, or it could be something worse than that. You know, it could rise to the level of uh, criminal activity. We could have stolen something from a store or, Um, had too many wine or beers or whatever at the bar and then got in the car and drove. Uh, I mean, I've done that before. I haven't gotten caught, but certainly have done that. So um, how do we we, uh, restore or repair harm and make amends and hold ourselves accountable? So I, I think that the reason that we shirk our responsibility and minimize what we've done is because we feel a sense of shame. And I wanna put shame in a more positive light. So so in a sense, I feel like having a sense of shame is okay because we wanna see ourselves differently than that. We don't wanna see ourselves as somebody who commits a crime or is mean, says something that we regret or steals from a store or embezzles from a business. and, and so I, I look at shame as possibly p- a positive quality. Uh, hopefully it doesn't, not, we're not walking around with lots of shame and carrying it with us all the time. Hopefully that shame turns to regret and through the regret, we can repair harm and repair relationships. So we first have to take responsibility though. And I think first we have to take responsibility to ourselves. And we have to be honest with ourselves about what we actually did and um, and be very specific about that. So sometimes I get an apology letter at work that says, I'm sorry about that thing that happened. Um, it won't happen again. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, wait a minute, what's the thing that happened? And who did that thing? And what what specifically was it? So I think it's important to be specific. I'm sorry I said blah, blah, blah to you. I'm sorry I stole from your store. 
Um, and then some kind of understanding and attempt at understanding how that impacted somebody else. So how do you imagine what you did or said impacted another person? And this is where I feel like generally we're not so great at that. Most of the time we're thinking about ourselves. What's going to happen to me? That, that's another thing I've noticed at my job. Okay, so I'm on probation. I got a fine. I have to pay this amount of money. I have to report to this person. Um, and so it's all about me, me, me. <clears throat> what's what's going to happen to me? And so I, I've just been thinking about it lately. Like how how do we? Um, and again, it doesn't have to rise to the level of a crime. How do we impact other people by what we say or do? And how are we impacted by other people too? So it goes both ways. And I think that we often minimize the power of our speech and the power of our actions on other people. And um, I think it's good just to contemplate that. So how does meditation fit into this whole process? Um, I, I know that we often um, just are habituated to think certain things and then we act in a certain way based on that thinking. And so meditation offers us the opportunity to slow down, to see what we're actually thinking, to consider possibly interrupting that thought pattern and possibly acting in a different way or may, maybe First of all, just being honest with ourselves and saying, this is what I did, or this is what I said. And um, just imagine how somebody else was impacted by that. I'm just gonna give you a tiny little example. Last month I was um, in Utah with my family and I have a 95 year old mother who has mild dementia and um, it's not so bad that she doesn't know what's going on, but she does repeat herself all the time. And I just got frustrated a few times and I felt terrible. She has dementia. She wouldn't be asking it again if she knew how <laughs> it was answered the last time. So then there's a sense of regret. But then the next thing is, then what? Like, how do we, how do we learn from that? Because that can't feel good to her. And um, then I thought, okay, so how would, do I want to be, talk to like that by one of my kids if I'm 95 and have dementia, you know? So just that, like taking ourselves out of our own little sphere and considering how what we say or do impacts somebody else. There's plenty of people who um, come to our office, especially DUIs where there was no crash or um, no obvious victims or affected parties. But when you start to ask, you know, well, who do you live with? Uh, well, I have a wife or I have a husband. Well, how are they impacted? Well, they weren't really. It's fine. You know, oh, how are you getting to work? Because you lost your license. Oh, well, my boss picks me up. So, you know, with with questions, we realize that what we do impacts actually quite a few people. Somebody arrested them. Somebody took them to the police barracks. Anyway, it, it's amazing how, how many people are impacted by just who we are and what we say and what we do. The possible fruition 
of looking at ourselves and how we impact others and how we're impacted by others, that's our way to that deeper, deeper connection with people and that sense of belonging, that we have to be vulnerable with ourselves and with others to um, to actually admit to ourselves what we've done. It could also be a positive thing. I was thinking today at our office, um, we have a office administrator. She came upstairs at some point today and says, I'm going to the store. Does anybody want anything? That, how, that was so thoughtful. You know, it like, it makes a difference. It just feels good. It feel, you feel more connected. Like somebody cares. They thought about coming upstairs and asking if anybody wanted anything at the store. Um, and it's just small things like that. I also want to say um, that in our restorative panels that I've also seen a lot of healing take place when people especially have the affected party in the room with them and can tell them this is how it's impacted. They often have no idea. And they're able to make amends, repair harm, and leave there feeling much better about themselves, sort of restoring themselves. That's what it's all about, restoring, restoration. And that's very powerful to witness. So I feel like the opportunity to hold ourselves accountable allows us to develop some strength and confidence in ourselves through being vulnerable and honest and transparent. So I think that's all I have to say. We could have a discussion. Thank you so much for bringing to us this particular topic. I um, have not experienced in my seven years of participating with Shambhala this particular topic. And I consider it to be one of the most important. And the reason I say that is I've experienced within myself that I can analyze how I'm feeling myself. I can analyze my own emotions. And I can certainly think about what has happened. But the possibility of my re recognizing that I've harmed somebody is almost invariably the last thing I will come to awareness of. And it's usually just not only out of my awareness, but I think it's denial is really operating when it comes to the fact that I have done something wrong that could have hurt somebody. And it often, until I come to recognizing, things do not really feel all that much better. There could be a lot of rationalization, but until, until I come to that recognition and acceptance, things don't really feel better, but it's, it's could be the last thing I will come to. Thank you. That's very well said. I find that in my work all the time. I, just yesterday, we were doing a training at the college near us. And um, part of the training is talk about a time when you caused harm you didn't get caught, whether it was, you know, retail theft or whatever you did. And it's amazing how people just feel relieved just to say it, just to acknowledge it, not deny it anymore. Just that act of I did this, I caused some harm is, is um, the first step. Um, thank you for this. This is wonderful. I really appreciate it.
I've been um, a high school teacher for the past 17 years. And I've noticed high school students could benefit from this so much with the level of anxiety that teenagers these days are experiencing. Um, they would come into my classroom all worked up, you know, just couldn't settle down because of what someone texted or what went on in the hallway or what went on yesterday. So one um, trick that I started doing was to have them sit down and write on a piece of paper what was bothering them or what was on their mind when they walked in my classroom. And they would write it down and many of them, you know, there's nothing wrong. But after a while, like when I, after doing this, they would write it down and then I would say, okay, I'm coming around with the trash barrel now, rip it up into little pieces and throw it away. You know, just have time to reflect on what went on and how things went, take responsibility, uh, but reflect on what's going on in your life. And that, that was one way I dealt with it to kind of bring that level of anxiety and, and, you know, craziness that was going on in their life. And I didn't want to bring that into my classroom. Mm -hmm. Restorative practices are being taught in schools now. Um, our director works a lot with schools and does what she calls a summer institute for administrators and teachers and principals. So to bring restorative practices into schools so that kids aren't punished and expelled and, um, you know, basically pushed out of their community. And when somebody's pushed out of their community, they're more likely to harm that community because they, they are not as invested. So, yeah. I think it's a wonderful program. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much uh, for today, tonight's talk. Um, I have a question regarding how uh, you had mentioned as human beings, um, we have this fundamental need to connect with others um, and a sense of belonging. And say you, um, and do you feel that that's enough for people to to create a community that feel where people feel comfortable bringing up issues of harm, like I've been harmed, or um, it, you know, I, I feel like particularly in Shambhala, it's very difficult to talk about that. Um, in a in a skillful way, I should say. And what do you think is required? What conditions or what can we do to make sure that people who are harmed don't feel like they need to be silent about it or um, they don't, they feel like they're powerless? Like, how can we create a community community that allows for that um, and you know, I guess one thing you had mentioned, um, I think you mentioned um, that, you know, this whole restorative process is a process where you're, it's, a, it's different from the judicial system, right? You're not punishing. It's not, that's not the purpose. It's restorative. Mm -hmm. uh, so how can we, um, how can we create a community that has that kind of mindset? Thank you. Um, I can respond, but I'd like to hear from others too. So that's a, you know, huge question. And um, uh, so first, I think there needs to be safety. There needs to be a sense of uh, trust within a group 
uh, that you will be heard, that you will be taken seriously, that you're cared for. I know in our restorative panels, the very first thing we do is introduce ourselves with the intention of um, coming together because we all live in this community and we want it to be a healthy community. So that's the first intention. I also let people know that the process that we do is not about punishment. So nobody's gonna wag their finger at anybody and tell them they did a terrible, horrible thing. But the intention is to repair harm, to acknowledge what was what happened and to repair harm. And, and then the last step is to avoid reoffense. So how do you avoid doing this again? And um, all of those steps are important, but I'd love to hear other people weigh in on this too. One thing that seems to be helpful for people to come forward and talk about how they've been harmed is seeing other people coming forward and talking about it and, um, you know, having other brave people stand up and, and say that, but then obviously you run into the problem of well, what if you're the first person who's had this particular harm or, you know, who's going to be the first one to say it and all that. So I think then outside of those victims and, and people who've been harmed stepping up themselves, I think we, we could, um, what would help is having the leadership and the, the organization being brave enough to talk about difficult things, harm related or not, and um, being able to listen and hear those things. Because I think if it seems like leadership isn't really going to listen or doesn't want to hear it, then I think people don't bring it up. Um, whereas when it feels like genuinely open-hearted listening and and people being open-minded and, and wanting to help, um, hopefully that would encourage people to, to open up themselves. Thank you. That's a very good point. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for this. Um, so th this is interesting because just like Bobby said, um, I work for a technology company in New York City. So, I mean, you guys can imagine how um, hectic and stringent it really is over there. Um, I've been there for since August, so for a few months now. And working there, it's like nobody really talks about how their feelings, how they how they are feeling, or how management is just like really on top of you. So if you want to like share like you're stressed out or you just want like a mental health day, um, which my company offers, luckily, it's kind of frowned upon. Um, so I brought that up with a few of my coworkers where, you know, we work, if I wouldn't, if I wasn't on this right now, I would be working. So, um, and I get paid a yearly salary. So it's over hours. It's, I technically don't have to, but it's so much work. So it's stressful and it definitely causes things in personal lives. Right. So I've, I've spoken to a few of my colleagues and they're so stressed and this and that, and, and. I went to my manager and I was like, listen, like, I think we should do some like open discussion forum where at the end of the day, it's just like an open door policy. We say what we want to say, how we feel, because I think just as much as we crave connection, we also crave acceptance. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of like what I'm going through. Maybe somebody else isn't going through the same exact thing, but something of the same lines, like shame is shame. Vulnerability is vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, so we started doing that the last few weeks. Um, and it really, really did help. And I, and one of my other colleagues, we were the first two to really just step up and share examples. And 
there was a whole line that followed after the fact. Um, so creating that and just starting it, um, realizing that everybody most likely, or if not yet, they will go through something similar. Um, creating that community, it, it really helps. Thank you, Angela. That's really, really important. Um, I know in our office, when I first started there, you know, some things would come up and um, just there was a, a little tension around a little staff and the director and hierarchy and power. And, um, you know, we just said we're a restorative justice center. Let's do a circle process. Let's talk about this. And we have and we do it every week. And uh, it's not like we bring up issues every week, but we could bring up anything. And there's been tears and there's been laughter, but I feel like we're really practicing restorative justice and it's an amazing place to work. I mean, I, the, we don't always agree about things, but we listen to each other and we're respectful and we practice what we're doing, which feels great. As somebody who got trained by Tune volunteer <laughs> in the panel, I want to say that when we went through training, it was very important to um, be very friendly and not to scold anybody. Like, what did you do? You know, how do you, how do you understand how bad it is? So it was so subtle that we are just so friendly, and uh, basically we create such a a warm situation, an equal situation that people talk without feeling that they are like, you know, like um, they come very tense, but then they relax and just we are family and we just want to you be part of us. So it's almost like something happens that blocks this connection and let's just unblock it together. So it's really important, this trust that you talk about, Yon Yon. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can just, as Shambhala, and just all go through training how to do it. I agree, Ella. I feel like as Shambhalians, we could use this training. It would help us. Um, it's interesting hearing a lot of these ideas and, and what people have been saying is it kind of feels like that is the practice of meditation a lot of times it's kind of being a, a you know a nice warm friendly you know to yourself allowing yourself to to hear your thoughts without getting angry and, and judging um you know all these things and uh yeah it's it's something that i've been thinking about lately of accountability in terms of not just I'm not going to drive drunk and that's me being accountable, but I'm not going to let myself fall into a depression that would cause me to get super drunk and then potentially put me in the path of driving drunk. Um, you know, not just being accountable for the, the letter of the law, but kind of being accountable to yourself and um, yeah, kind of preventing harm before it even could potentially happen in the first place, kind of. Mm, thank you, good point. I'm not, I'm not sure how to really phrase this, um, 
but I guess how could you get somebody to see that they have to go through this process if they just, they don't want to? Yeah, good question. So um, I, I, we didn't talk about circle practice here because that wasn't my topic, but circle practice is, a, is, is the sort of indigenous culture's way of dealing with conflict or, or just community building. So um, if it's possible to anybody in your, if, it, if you're referring to your work situation, for anybody to get familiar with circle process and present it, you start off very, very gentle, very like, you know, where's your favorite place to eat kind of thing. And then you get more into what your values are and um, how you liked, how you would like your work situation. You go to a deeper and deeper level, but you have to sort of start off gentle and easy so that people get familiar and comfortable with each other and feel safe in the circle. But it takes somebody to start that process, to suggest it and to get it started. Now, what if somebody, I guess, I'm trying to look at it from a different perspective. Um, somebody uses anger or resentment that they have towards themselves out on you. Does that make sense? Should I try to rephrase? Um, so if somebody is hmm, causing harmful actions, um, whether criminal or not, so inside they're repressing something or they're angry inside, they don't want to admit it or let it out. Um, and so they're angry at the world, quote unquote, right? And so now they're, they're expressing it out on you. So they're saying things to you that aren't necessarily true um, or acting in, in that manner. What would you say to that? Mm. That's really hard and it's really sad. I wouldn't be defensive though. Don't, don't defend yourself. You don't need to. And it might not change. That's the sad part. Maybe anybody else wants to weigh in. And, and I, I think it's important to realize that they're suffering also. Yeah, but that's what I was about to say is that those are sometimes so much just so painful to witness because it's like they're not even aware of it. So it's hard to even be mad at them. It's like being mad at my cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the only thing I would suggest is, yeah, just by, you know, being a, I guess the bigger person, I don't know if that's um, the right way of phrasing it, but leading by example, mm. you know, being a stronger, compassionate person and uh, hoping that they notice that and wake up a little bit. In your situation, when you have a victim and a perpetrator to deal with, and let's say the victim is open and compassionate and this wants to be understanding but the perpetrator continues to be fearful defensive and so forth mm -hmm. yeah but how to avoid idiot compassion that's that's where i'm mm -hmm. exploring yeah 
So we talk about that in our training, actually. We talk about, we call it the social discipline window. So we don't want to do things to people, which would be punishing them, telling them what they have to do. And I'm the authority here and, you know, you're going to do this. We don't want to be too permissive and do everything for them. So we want to do things with them, like support them, but also hold them accountable. We also don't want to neglect them either, like just dismiss everything. So we, we spend some time talking about that. It doesn't always go smoothly when there's an affected party and a responsible party, but usually it's not in the way that you're talking about it. It's usually uh, sometimes that the affected party is so hurt and angry that they just are vicious in the meeting and might bring up things that don't have to do with the specific reason that they're there. And that's really hard because, you know, they have a right to be angry and to say what they want to say, but if it's not going to bring some kind of um, closure or if it's not going to, not closure, if it's not going to help the situation where the, then sometimes the responsible party, we call them the responsible party. If they can't, if they can no longer hear the person, then there's no point either. You know, it's hard. I mean, we've had to stop meetings before and just ask to focus, refocus on the situation that they're there for and not go off on a tangent. I had one guy say, well, all your friends are drug addicts. And, you know, it's like, no, that's, that that's, um, I'm going to stop the conversation then. So it doesn't always go smooth. How do you recommend just stopping the conversation? No, I just stop it. <laughs> I mean, do parties typically like walk away or it's kind of like, let's regroup tomorrow? Um, I don't usually have to do that. No, it's usually, to, could we bring the focus back to the reason we're here? Is that okay? Is everybody agreeable to that? Sometimes, um, sometimes we'll stop the meeting and come back at a different time. That has happened before too. Yeah, it's challenging. This is an area where we've had disagreement within our staff is, does, a, does the victim or affected party have the right to say whatever they wanna say in the meeting and even if they don't want to come to the meeting and they write a victim statement, do we need to read all of it if it's very vitriolic? That was a disagreement we had within our staff. We were divided about that. It's their right to be heard. And other of us said that's not restorative. So is interesting conversation. You know, calling somebody a name, a loser, or you'll never amount to anything. That was in a letter that a victim wrote. And do you read that to them? Is that going to help anybody? Or do they, do they have the right to say whatever they want to say and be represented in that way in the meeting? Tune, could I ask, when you do use meditation for your restorative um, and you're with the guilty person, is it one-on-one -on -one or do you do a group meditation session. I don't do any meditation with the process. I, okay. I just brought it to this um, environment. I just brought it to this um, 
teaching because just as a way of reflecting on our, you know, what we think and how we behave. Hmm. Wouldn't it be wonderful though to do with the guilt? That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> and make them reflect and and see their responsibility and and then hopefully make amends and yeah. There, I mean, there are aspects that I do bring into um, the process. So I've noticed that on the reparative panels, people talk fast. And if they ask a question, they don't wait very long for an answer. So I'm always saying, if you ask a question, it's okay. Silence is fine. It's so we can wait. It's okay. Like wait for the person to answer. We, we don't need to jump in with another question. So to me, that's um, a, a little piece of the mind of meditation of just allowing the silence to be there and it's uncomfortable, but that's okay. And I also ask them, we do a training on open-ended questions. Don't say, do you still drink? You know, don't ask specific question where there's a yes or no, unless you just need information. But other than that, you could ask, what do you like about drinking? What's your relationship with, like with drinking? What have you thought about since? Where would you like to see yourself in five years? That kind of thing. So helping them to reflect. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. No advice giving. <laughs> it's a start. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.